And so my idea ultimately is to, uh, to immerse readers into a foreign world, to give them a sense that they're actually living with these characters. Welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Christopher Stanley, author of A Slave Story, A Rooster for Asclepios, A Bull for Pluto, and the forthcoming A Ram for Mars. I think in, in academic work, there's the pleasure of, of uh, achieving a task that's going to uh, contribute to a field. In fiction, there's... Um, creating a world that I can share with other people. Christopher D. Stanley is a professor at St. Bonaventure University who studies the social and religious history of the Greco-Roman world, with special attention to early Christianity and Judaism. He has written or edited six books and dozens of professional articles on the subject, and presents papers regularly at conferences around the world. The trilogy, A Slave Story, which grew out of his historical research on first century Asia Minor, is his first work of fiction. He is currently working on an academic book that explores healing practices in the Greco-Roman world, a subject that plays a vital role in this series. His forthcoming novel, the third in the series, is titled A Ram for Mars. Well, I wonder if you could start by telling us more about your interest in the Greco-Roman world and how you came to develop such a strong interest in that history. I got into this really kind of through the back door. Uh, I started out with um, interest in uh, New Testament and early Christianity, did my PhD at Duke in that area. And initially I was more oriented toward the literary side of things. Um, but the more I um, learned about the social world of uh, the Roman world, Roman Empire, I uh, came to see that um, it was easy to misunderstand literature if you didn't know the world in which it arose, you would bring in all kinds of modern assumptions and uh, uh, ideas and, and misread texts. And the more that I learned about the uh, kind of social world of that period, the more I came to see that uh, uh, one understands the text better and more clearly when, when they can situate it in its own world. And so I've shifted more in, in many ways, the, the academic writings I do these days, books and articles, are, um, uh, talk uh, a whole lot more about the social world than they do about the actual uh, uh, early Christian texts. But I focus on the Apostle Paul. And so, for example, right now I'm working on an academic book where about 80 or 90 percent of the book is going to be about um, or is, is in the process of being about um, various modes of sickness and healing in the Greco-Roman world. 
And only in the last uh, couple of chapters do I finally get around to trying to apply how this might relate to uh, Paul and early Christianity. And how how do you piece all that together as far as the social world goes? It seems like that's very challenging to go back that far in our history and to be able to to put together and understand how the social world operated. Right. One of the things that um, maybe contributes to it is I've been working at this for about 30 years now. So one does pick up a lot along the way. One also learns where to look um, so that you don't have to do a lot of spinning your wheels or perhaps like a new fiction author trying to uh, um, back and fill a lot of information that you uh, uh, don't have. But one of the other benefits that I found in doing a PhD and focusing on this world is one can learn how to say, I don't know with confidence because you know the materials and you know where materials are available and where they're not. And uh, so I think a lot of doing social history has to, as you probably know, do with um, learning to um, ask different kinds of questions of text, to read between the grain, to uh, read across the grain or between the lines, uh, to um, pay attention to things in the existing text that traditional historians have not paid attention to. And when you start doing that, you can learn an awful lot that nobody's really missed, really gotten in the past. Well, I think, as you, you said, you, you, you've you been at this for 30 years and you have learned a lot and you share that with your readers in your fiction. Tell us more about your, your background as an academic and then how you're able to turn and pivot into fiction and, and bring that academic, you know, knowledge to, to life in fiction. Right. Um, maybe I could start with the end and work backwards. I mean, why do fiction? I, I never had any interest, any imagination in doing fiction. Um, you know, I was trained essentially as a, as a textual analyst and then uh, developed more and more in terms of social history. And a lot of my... Um, um, I, I, once, I taught at a school for a little while where I had to teach a whole breadth of things in religious studies and developed an interest in more the uh, sociological and anthropological approaches to religion, uh, both contemporary and ancient. And a lot of what I've done in the years since in my writing has been more along the lines of um, uh, social analysis and uh, anthropological perspectives and bringing those to bear. So I, I'm more kind of... Uh, I don't want to say I'm a social scientist because I don't do a lot of formal use of theory, but I, in, my work is informed a lot by social scientific theory. And so that, again, has affected the way I've read and written, and I've written a number of books in relation to things like these and lots of articles and present papers around at different conferences. The fiction part came really from a challenge from my wife, who uh, a number of years ago just said to me out of the blue one day, you know, with all this historical research you do, you ought to think about writing a historical novel. Now, she and I both love historical fiction. We do a lot of reading, or in my case, listening to them in audiobooks. And one of the gripes that we have about a lot of historical fiction is people take modern characters and put them into the past, and they think and act like and speak like modern characters. And so soon as she said that, I said, I don't know anything about writing fiction. I never thought about writing fiction. It's not the kind of thing I do. But... The next day, this wonderful opening scene developed in my mind, and I went and told her about it, and she said, boy, that sounds good. And over the next week, this uh, next two weeks, this book, uh, what turned into these first two books, basically wrote itself, as I would uh, tell her, and this happens, and this goes this way, and, and she 
she's she's quite a she can be critical, and she was actually encouraging. Uh, and uh, so I felt like I had something to work with here that would allow me to bring uh, a number of different threads of things I've been working on in my academic work to bear uh, on writing fiction. And then um, over just the last little kind of thread of it was I was uh, hiking around in the UK about a couple of years later before I'd really done any work on this. And uh, I was there uh, speaking at some universities. And as I was walking along the top of this beautiful mountain in um, central England, this uh, opening scene just began to write itself word for word in my mind. And I tried to memorize it as I went along and went back and took it down and sent it to my wife. And she said, you can write fiction. This is as good as other things I read. And so it's just been a matter of developing that further and fleshing out and putting meat on the bones of what began a number of years ago. And then doing that alongside my academic research in such a way as interesting, as odd as this might sound, that my academic research has also been informed by my fiction research. So the book that I'm writing right now on the academic side is something I never would have written if I had not done the research for the novels. Yeah, I imagine that when you're doing your research or you're you're, you're traveling, much like uh, an artist, a painter might look at the world, you have to kind of look at the world a little bit differently and, and think about how your characters might interact in, in those settings. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, everything in the novels is based on um, significant on-the-ground research. Um, when I refer to places uh, and activities, uh, you can go to Turkey today and visit and stand on those very sites, unless they've not been excavated, where I had to use my imagination for part of a site. Um, so when I'm looking at a, I'm not an archaeologist, but I use archaeological materials a lot. And uh, I'm not interested in just seeing, you know, a, a nice historic building. I look at a whole site. I look at the, the kind of envision the people living here and know enough about uh, what life was like in a Greek or Roman city to be able to um, uh, see it as an integral whole. And I think that that's the kind of thing that writing the novels actually, in some ways, both drew on material I already knew and helped me to see things um, that I'd never asked about before. Uh, made me go look and dig into questions of social realities um, that I wasn't so sure about. So again, I learned a lot through the writing of the project. Well, you, you mentioned social realities, and I want to ask you about that. But before I do, um, for, for those who aren't familiar or haven't read your work, why don't you tell us a little bit about A Slave Story and, and the books that you have out there? Sure. This um, originally began as one novel, and then I had a sequel in mind, but the first book turned into a rather large work. It, uh, by the time I finished, it was about a thousand pages in manuscript. And so uh, that turned out to be a little too big for agents to take seriously. And so I, there was a very natural break point. So I divided that into two, and then there still will be the sequel. So it's turned into a trilogy. Plot summaries of all three books are available on my website, aslavesstory.com. So there's more detail can be gathered there. But in a nutshell, the story um, focuses on two characters, uh, a master and a slave who live in a Roman colony uh, city in central Turkey uh, that was called uh, Antioch near Pisidia, or we refer to it today as Pisidian Antioch. And it's a um, uh, fairly normal, mundane, uh, 
Greco-Roman city. There's nothing particularly remarkable about it. And that's one of the things that I should say about my novels. I'm trying to represent life of ordinary people in the ancient world. There are not real historical figures and real historical events in this book in the sense of so much historical fiction is taking actual characters and events and trying to maybe you bring in a minor character from whose perspective the story is told. What I'm doing is crafting a new story that is reflecting all kinds of aspects of the lives of people in those times. So the slave and the master, uh, and the slave is uh, a well-off slave in the sense that he's a secretary and personal assistant to his master. And right off the bat, you begin to get a sense that something is different here because we have an image of slavery that is framed around the Southern American experience. In the Roman world, it was much more diverse. And in fact, it was often much better to be a slave of a wealthy free person than to be a poor free person yourself. Uh, and I can come back to that if you like. So the initially, the story focuses more on the master who is moving up in the city and then has a, fall, a downfall that you'd have to read about in the novel and gets depressed. And he also has an illness. And more and more, this chronic illness becomes the focal point of the story. His slave cares about him. Uh, they have a good relationship. And eventually, uh, events occur through a, a dream in which a god of healing, Asclepius, appears to him, which is something that was very common in the ancient world as something people sought to, uh, to receive, uh, that seems to be telling him to go to the god's sanctuary in western Turkey, in Pergamon, several hundred miles away, and that there he will be healed. And so he embarks, they embark together on this event-filled journey uh, a lot of narrative of things along the way. In some, in some ways, you might say the first, uh, that middle chunk of the book is kind of a travel log, but a lot of things happen there that are relevant to developing storyline. And the first book ends with a long section of them arriving at Pergamon and the various kinds of treatments. And ultimately, uh, if I can give away a little bit of spoiler alert, uh, disappointment. The second book then picks up with the return trip in which they go through some different areas. And at this point, the master is beginning to despair of life and other things happen. Meanwhile, the slave, Marcus, who's really the main character, becomes increasingly the focal point of the story. He learns some things about his past that he never knew that his master had kept from him that, uh, that he doesn't necessarily like, things that uh, are going to reshape his identity and the way people look at him if he embraces it. And by the end of the second novel, um, the master is the, uh, the helpless one, and the slave is more the driving force. And additional secrets come out at the end, and he is faced with the challenge of does he embrace these or not. Along the way, there also are female characters, uh, romance. There's all kinds of other things. Other minor characters come into play, so it doesn't focus just on them. But in some ways, the, the story is a tragedy for the master. And it's a journey of discovery and uh, challenge and ultimately a, a good outcome for the slave. The third volume then picks up or will pick up um, as the slave ends up going to Israel because of things that he's discovered about his history and his identity. And um, he and what will be his new wife arrive there at a time that is just before the great uh, Jewish revolt against the Romans it begins in 66 AD. And so We'll be tracing the third book, um, Marcus's story through that conflict, but from the standpoint of a pro-Roman person rather than someone who is opposed to the Romans. And so that's going to give a rather different perspective. Well, it's a very interesting relationship that 
you focus on. And you did mention the, the social hierarchy and how it's different than how we perceive it today or how we perceive slavery in, in the American South. Um, can you tell us a little more about that social hierarchy? And then I also want to ask about what I would call a warning that you put in the preface of A Rooster for Asclepios. And I'm just going to read it here word for word. You write, while there is much in these books that will be familiar to any reader due to the consistency of human nature and human societies over time, there's also much here that will surprise, puzzle, and even offend modern readers who are used to authors toning down the uniqueness of the past, whether to make the material more accessible or because they simply don't know better. Can you comment on that and why you felt that was important to include in, in your preface? Yeah, going back to what I said earlier, about uh, my myself and my wife being annoyed by people putting modern characters into the past, uh, my aim was actually to to expose the past in all its glories and ugl- and ugliness, and slavery is a good way to <clears throat> be able to talk about that. On the one hand, slavery is an evil institution. Humans uh, are deprived of their dignity, their freedom, and we could go on and on. And of course, we all would accept that. But whereas in the American South, there wasn't a lot of variety in the experience of slaves, and it was based on skin color, race, whatever terms we want to use. In the ancient world, in the Roman world in particular, um, slavery had nothing to do with race or ethnicity. It was a product of people being conquered in warfare uh, and then being um, born in the households or on the farms or whatever. And then they were given different roles depending on their abilities and the needs of the master. So certainly there were slaves in the ancient world who were treated brutally, who uh, were overworked, who died young, uh, women and women, male and female slaves who were raped and were sexually sexually abused by their masters and on and on. And I do get into some of that here and there in the novel. But also to be a you know, just as in the South, you did have a certain privileged class that were called the house slaves who had a little better life than those who worked out in the fields. The same was true in the ancient world. But even within the household, there were things that slaves could do that um, one never would see in the American South. A slave who was uh, favored by the master, male or female, um, could uh, not only receive good treatment, good food, well cared for but um, unlike our experience, slaves uh, who had the opportunity could own, uh, own money. Slaves could uh, accumulate quite a bit of wealth. Slaves could even own other slaves and other property while they were still slaves themselves. And it was very common for slaves to be set free. For women, uh, once they were out of their childbearing years, for men, perhaps in their 30s, which for many people is that's getting to be a pretty old man. And um, at that point, there's, there's a kind of a trope in ancient uh, Roman literature, uh, the kind of the stereotype of the boorish freedman. A freedman is a slave who has been freed. And these boorish freedmen would often be quite wealthy because they had accumulated money working for a wealthy uh, master through wages, through tips to their master, through bribes, um, through good investments. And so the kind of stereotype was this rich freedman who would invite the... Uh, the old line Romans to his house and they would kind of feel coarse to go because they wanted to borrow money from him, but they despised his boorish manners and such as that. So slavery could actually be a course of social advancement uh, for those who had the opportunity to be in close relationship with a master. 
And if you were a female slave, it was not uncommon for a slave, female slave, to marry the master, uh, as also does happen in my novel. So tell us um, more about your, um, your your vigilance towards detail. I found it interesting that you have created these characters, you've imagined these characters, but at the same time, um, you seem like uh, you're very uh, concerned about getting the details right, about getting the time period right. Um, why is that so important to you to get every little part of it right while creating this fictional world? Yeah, partly it's just because I'm a professor. I'm a teacher. I want people to learn. But I don't want, uh, the books are not in any way didactic. The um, the social realities um, slip in here and there in ways you don't notice. So, for example, I had someone, uh, a, a reader of the first book, who emailed me and said, did people really give each other the finger back then? I said, yes, they did. <laughs> I don't make any point of it, but it just, you know, it just happens. Uh, or some of the ways in which people talk. Uh, obviously, you know, the literature we have from the ancient world is all through the, from the pens of elite males. Um, and so, but we do have representations of ordinary people uh, through plays and um, uh, novels uh, from the ancient world, where we at least get some uh, elite representation of how they thought people in the lower levels spoke. And so I spent time working and, you know, reading some of those materials and trying to uh, not mimic uh, exactly the way people talked back then, but to appropriate appropriate expressions, appropriate language, appropriate uh, uh, ways of cursing, uh, things that um, would fit well with someone in that, uh, in that world. And so my idea ultimately is to, uh, coming back to your question, to immerse readers into a foreign world, to give them a sense that they're actually living with these characters. And uh, therefore, they can identify with them and follow them and care about them while also learning along the way. And the, the reviews I've got seem to be indicating that I've been largely successful in that, that uh, the amount of detail I've gotten is not so much a matter of distraction, but it is more a matter of immersion in a world so that your imagination is engaged and enriched through the course of following the story. Well, I listened to to your audio of the prologue for mm-hmm. your first novel, and I think you really did a wonderful job of, of helping me or helping the reader, the listener, sink into the world of Marcus, a, a Roman slave. So uh, yeah, you definitely have that way of bringing these characters to life. Um, and you, you talked about how this just kind of came to you. You, you. you just saw the story unfold before you. Um, how did you come up with Marcus and his owner, Lucas, or Lucius? I'm not sure how that's pronounced. Yeah, Lucius. Mm-hmm. Lucius. Um, what, did they just kind of come to you naturally? Was it hard work to develop their backgrounds and character? That was really part of that initial uh, moment of insight. Um, 
it was uh, almost, you know, it, as odd as it sounds, uh, they came fully formed in large, and, and yet only in a broad sense. Um, I got to know them through telling the story. And one of the things I experienced in writing these books that I've heard other fiction writers say, but I just could not comprehend, is that I did not feel like, once I got into the story, I did not feel like I was creating a story. I didn't feel like I'm a craftsman, a puppet maker, a puppet master, making these characters do things. I felt like they were living, breathing characters, and I was just recording what they did. And sometimes when I was not writing, I would have this kind of feeling in the back of my mind that my characters are still living out their lives. Um, and the interesting thing about that is sometimes they did things that surprised me. I was not, there are things in these books that I had not intended to happen. And I got to a certain point in the story and uh, essentially the character said, this is what I'm going to do or what I'm going to say, like it or not. <laughs> so the story went in some different directions, particularly what the ending of the second novel is not something I had, um, part of it I had anticipated, but uh, some key events, there were things I had never had in mind um, uh, in the beginning of the story. Well, I've definitely heard some other fiction authors, you know, express that that same sensation or that same ability to not tell their characters what to do, but just record what what they're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's that's fascinating, and it sounds like you fit right in with with fiction. Do you do you enjoy writing fiction as much as you enjoy doing the research and writing some of your nonfiction? I think I, I enjoy both in a different way. Um, I am a, uh, a detail person. My academic scholarship is very uh, um, uh, full of kind of detailed critical analysis of various types. And so I, that flows over into the novels. And I know people who are not detail people find that to be, uh, you know, the most boring or painful thing they could do. But there is certainly a lot of pleasure in both. Uh, but both are slow as a result. I'm not a person who's going to sit down and write a whole pile of material in academic or fictional writing in one day or, or in one week. Um, but it's a slow, artful crafting in both areas. But I'm actually retiring in August and, uh, and facing, you know, thinking about what do I do? I, I want to be full-time writing. But um, I'm, I'm going to continue to do both. I've got uh, another couple of uh, academic books uh, that I want to do is also writing the third volume of uh, this trilogy. And then I actually have a novel, an idea for a, um, a, a completely unrelated novel set in a completely different period uh, based on some things that I've learned about my own family uh, that we never knew in the early uh, years of uh, America when they were Quakers in Virginia. And uh, the Quakers kept good records of their members. So there's a lot of interesting things to work with there. If I really had to choose, I think I would choose fiction. I think there's a certain more, a certain greater pleasure. I think in, in academic work, there's the pleasure of, of uh, achieving a task that's going to uh, contribute to a field. In fiction, there's um, creating a world that I can share with other people. Well, it sounds like you're, you'll certainly be busy, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Um, you may be busier in retirement than, than before. <laughs> I certainly plan to. One thing you, I was going to mention earlier when you said you'd listen to a recording, uh, I've actually today submitted to Audible the 
recordings of all the of the entire first book to be posted on Audible. It'll be available in about a month, so I'm guessing probably around July 1st. So that the my if a wonderful reader, I, I feel like uh, the um, I liked it better read aloud than I did on the page, and I'm hopefully he's going to do the second volume as well. Yeah, that's great. Um, it, it, I, I enjoyed listening to it um, from your website. I did. I couldn't find it on, on Amazon there, but yeah, it sounds like you're getting that up and it'll be available soon. And you said you you prefer to listen to audiobooks yourself. I do. I'm I'm not a person. Is I'm just a busy person. My, my wife calls me the Energizer Bunny. Um, between my academic work, uh, kind of social political action, um, taking care of a house, um, having a rental property I watch over, um, I stay busy. Uh, so I do most of my, quote, reading, unquote, while I'm doing other things, while I'm driving, uh, while I'm working around the house, uh, while I'm lying in the hot tub at night. Um, I've always got some, got two or three books going at one time. I particularly like, uh, partly because I'm cheap and partly because of my uh, um, interests, uh, I do download a lot of books from LibriVox.org where you can get them for free. And to free means, um, of course, out of print. And so I've really enjoyed a lot of the 19th century British fiction authors. And I think at some deep level, my own writing has been influenced by them more than by modern authors. Um, uh, the certain ways that they work with language and characters and worlds that uh, um, it takes time to develop. You know, we want things to happen immediately today. And they had the time and they took the time. And so if there's anything that someone might, that I might uh, get criticized for in my novels is it's a bit slow to develop because you're embracing and moving into a new world and a new reality. I think that's important, uh, especially when we're going to a reality, you know, in the ancient world, you know, it's not something that we're, we're, we can really relate to, you know, on some levels. And so I think it's important to develop that, that setting and those characters as much mm -hmm. as possible. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the importance of history. Um, you talk about what these stories can offer us for today. And certainly that's something we're all searching for when we study history. And is it important? Is it valuable or not? Should we study history? And of course, you and I know the answer is, is yes, we should. Mm -hmm. But how, how do you think readers can take what they, the stories um, in your novels and then relate them to the world today? Yeah, I think that um, I could probably say three ways that are kind of... Um, uh, that come to my head and that I wrote a little bit about elsewhere. Um, in the first place, um, I think grappling with a different world, you know, as L.P. Hartley said, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there, can make us question things about our own world, make us, uh, uh, instead of automatically judging the past by our standards, uh, I think a good historical novel can make us also ask questions about our own world. Is our world necessarily better? And uh, also can make us to question, for example, when I talk about slavery, certainly I don't want my readers to adopt a more uh, positive um, value judgment towards slavery, but the fact that they can imaginatively enter into a world of someone who operated under those conditions and survived and flourished can perhaps help us to better understand people in other parts of our world today 
who don't enjoy the kinds of freedoms that we do. And uh, to be able to see that oftentimes they develop means of coping that as odd as it might sound to us, they can have joy and happiness even in brutal conditions. Uh, I think over and over stories of people who survived those kinds of conditions will will narrate that they found some some source of, of peace and, and joy even in the midst of their sufferings. Uh, a second thing, uh, since again, one of the issues that plays a, a more central role than I've said in the book is uh, sickness and healing. And um, this is again an area where the uh, where I, uh, some readers will find my descriptions to be uh, a bit more graphic than they like. Um, I don't just say he got sick. I say how, what happened, you know, and sometimes it means describing some rather messy situations, though I don't get into every detail. But, uh, you know, we live in a world where we don't do that, where we are isolated from the, um, experience of sickness and to, to, for many of us also the experience of death and so by in, in essence kind of bringing these things to the forefront i think it can make readers to maybe think more um about things that we try to avoid thinking about what would i do in in lucius's condition how would i respond if i had this kind of illness and these things didn't work how would i would i would i go off on this trek because somebody told me some god was going to heal me there um what would i do when my hopes are disappointed would i just sink in a, sink in a depression or would i you know rise to the occasion um and then relationships are also central uh in the books you know a good novel is always going to have people who are involved in relationships who either do a good job or a bad job of dealing with relationships and i, I think one of the things about fiction generally is enables readers to imaginatively live through someone else's experience and think about what I would do. And so the same is the case in the relationships. You know, what if you were a slave? Um, would you despise your master? Can you imagine a context where there might be a positive relationship despite our modern value judgments, um, et cetera? What about similar relationships in our own lives, relationships with our boss, for example? So I think that in some ways, being exposed to a very different world than we're used to can help us to um, uh, think about things that we've not thought about in relation to our own world or haven't thought about perhaps as, as well or clearly as we might. Yeah, it can be very eye-opening and, and it sounds like a lot of really great lessons that lie within those those stories. Uh, I, before I let you go, I wonder if you could comment about the titles of each of your novels mm -hmm. or um, where, you know, wh what was the inspiration for those titles? Now, Asclepius is the uh, Greek god of healing, uh, and his name is the title in the first book because he plays a central role in it. The expression, a rooster for Asclepius, is actually, according to Plato, uh, taken from the last words of Socrates, where he said, um, when he'd already drunk the hemlock, uh, and he said to one of his um, uh, companions there, uh, don't forget to offer a cock or, uh, to uh, uh, Asclepius, is how it's normally translated. My original title, therefore, was uh, A Cock for Asclepius. Eventually, my wife and another friend, a female friend, convinced me that that was not a good title, that uh, cock carried other connotations that perhaps might uh, uh, be problematic. Sure. And so they persuaded me to change it to A Rooster. 
And it's also significant in the sense that uh, you're going to, as one will learn in the novel, Asclepius was a god who was known as a caring, compassionate deity who treated all alike and who was happy with humble offerings like roosters. He didn't have to be bribed with bulls and sheep. By the way, there's a lot of Roman religious life and practice and sacrificial system and prayers and rituals uh, in the novel. Uh, in the novels. And there's also a lot that I haven't talked about, about the place of Judaism and to some degree Christianity in the Roman world. So people who are interested in religion will certainly find a lot here. Um, the other, then once I had a, a rooster for Asclepius, uh, it was pretty clear the others would have to have a similar title, that they, the sacrificing of bulls to Pluto plays an important role in a key scene in the second book. And then the war is a central theme in the third, and therefore um, Mars, the Roman god of, uh, of uh, war, and uh, rams were a sacrifice that he particularly is enamored of. And so it made a nice um, trilogy, a rooster for Asclepius, a bull for Pluto, a ram for Mars, and yet all of it under this broad category, a broad series title of a slave's story, because it is fundamentally about a slave. So he does become free by the end of the second book. Well, they're, they're intriguing titles and um, yeah, it works. They work very well together, I think. My cover image has worked out well to go with each one also. Yeah. Well, I've been talking with Dr. Christopher Stanley, author of A Slave Story, A Rooster for Asclepios, A Bull for Pluto, and the forthcoming A Ram for Mars. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's been very nice to chat with you. criticisms I often got was that my my books had too much information and that uh, there's no place for in fiction for footnotes or citations <laughs> or anything like that isn't that frustrating yeah so I decided well if, if they're gonna I'll say no I'll, I'll just do it myself and so I started my own company called history through fiction and 